Welcome, everybody. We're having a look back at some of the best interviews to appear on my TV show, Pop Life. A little bit later on in the show, we'll meet Danny Goldberg. Danny Goldberg is one of the most legendary music managers of all time. He's worked with everyone from Led Zeppelin to Nirvana and Stevie Nicks. We'll get to him in a little while. We'll also meet Humble the Poet, the author of Things No One Else Can Teach Us. Oh, and he's also a YouTube star with millions of followers. We'll also meet Mo Rocca. He is, of course, one of the correspondents for CBS Sunday Morning, and he's got a great new book called Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Living. First up, though, we're going to meet one of the people who has changed our views on science forever. That's astronaut Chris Hadfield. He's the first Canadian to walk in space. In addition to being the most famous astronaut in our country, He's an author, engineer, and former Royal Canadian Air Force fighter pilot. Captain Kirk himself, William Shatner, is a fan, and the late, great David Bowie called Hadfield's acoustic version of Space Oddity, performed on board the International Space Station in 2013, possibly the most poignant version of the song ever recorded. At the Pop Life Bar, he talked about how being in space makes you aware of how connected you are to people on Earth and much more. Here's Chris Hadfield. Let's go way back then right. and talk about how you got interested in all of this. Uh, reading an astronaut's guide to life on Earth, yeah. uh, you talk about science fiction. You sure. loved science fiction stories growing up. Oh, what yeah. was it about science fiction? And do you think that's where the seed of all of this was planted? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, when you're, whatever, seven years old or even five years old, you don't live in the real world. That's right. You know. It's like Calvin and Hobbes, right? You know, Hobbes is just a stuffed tiger, but for Calvin, that's a real living being, yeah. and, and there's no question. And, and so fiction, imagination, art, the, the permission to, to picture things that don't exist for real. I, I grew up on a farm, you know, heavy workload, yeah. schooled and working on the farm, and the escape of the possibilities seemed endless. First in books, you know, reading Asimov and, uh, and Heinlein and, and uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs and, and Jules Verne and stuff, just fantastic stuff, Mysterious Island, more science than science fiction. But then Star Trek, you know, <laughs> Star Trek, wow. We, we'd been watching Bonanza and yeah. suddenly here's Bonanza set in space, you know? And, and, and then 2001, I went, to see that Kubrick movie with uh, as as one of my friend's birthday party when we were about whatever eight. Yeah. And as you a group must of, not have understood a second. Uh, I, well, of I it. still don't understand <laughs> a second of it, but but it, it's it's still I, when I watch that, it just helps me imagine things that otherwise I would never go down with my head. But all of that was in parallel. That mind expansion was in parallel to the reality of spaceflight, mm -hmm. of uh, Gagarin and then Al Shepard and, and Alexei Leonov for spacewalk and then Neil and Buzz walking on the moon. And so to have the juxtaposition of fantasy and actual reality, it's like, what if Spider-Man and Superman <laughs> suddenly, you wow, they're real, and I could maybe do that. And that's what really uh, turned the light on for me was that this isn't just science fiction. This is a thing that other people are doing, and they're going to be Canadians doing this. And if you change who you are, then maybe you could be one of the people doing these things. So it kind of uh, set the path for me when I was eight, nine years old. But the odds of it actually happening for you in those days must have been fairly slim, don't well, you think? Well, I think they were zero because <laughs> there was no Canadian astronaut right. program, no Canadian rockets, no Canadian space agency. There was no end game. You know, there was nobody I could write my letters to, you know, but, 
But I figured, hey, when, when Neil and Buzz mm -hmm. were my age, and Yuri and, and Alexei, they didn't have anybody to write to either. And look what they did. It's the only thing that I could count on was that things were going to change, and that if I didn't change who I was, mm -hmm. then there was no way I was going to fly in space. So why not, why not shape who you are in pursuit of what you dream and at the same time earning a living, doing, mm -hmm. doing things that sort of drag your life that direction. But incredibly enough, at the end of all that, I flew in space three times and did spacewalks that are on the $5 bill and, uh, and commanded a spaceship. It, it seems surreal, but, but all those things have happened. When you got up there, was it the way you imagined it would be? That's a really cool question because <laughs> I actually had in the, in the back of my mind, I was like, what if I get there and I don't like it? Like, you know, you know, it's like drinking wine. You know, wine has so much mystique and yeah. everyone talks about it. And I'm sure there are some people that take their first sip of wine and go, that's what it tastes like? Really? I was, I was expecting something different. Um, and there are some people who fly in space and it, one flight is enough for them. The, the amount of work and the stress mm. and, the, and uh, the, the danger of it. But for me, it, it, when I was that little boy dreaming of it and, and you know, with a flashlight reading, uh, reading those science fiction books, it was better than I dreamed it would be. The combination of doing something that, I, that was really hard that I dreamed of, of having the whole world silent and, and whipping by in the window and, and having a superpower being weightless. I mean, if, if you could snap your fingers and make that happen again, I'd go with you in a heartbeat. It's a great experience. And seeing 16 sunrises a day, right? Yeah, yeah, you go, you go around the world in 90 minutes. So uh, if you, you know, 24 hours, 90 minutes, that means 16 times around a day. And, and they happen fast. You know, really? you're in the darkness, but you're coming around the world forcing the sunrise. And so um, it goes from the complete darkness of light and then it's like someone just dumps a rainbow on the horizon like a liquid and bam, up comes the sun and there's another sunrise. And every 90 minutes you get one of those. And, and the heat of the sun, because there's nothing stopping those sun rays except yeah. you know, one or two panes of, of thick plastic and it's on your face. So, so it's, uh, it's an amazing place to be and you get reminded every 90 minutes well, how amazing it is. Was that, you talk about the sunlight coming through and you feel it on your face. Was that the connection to the earthbound life that you had left behind, the sort of the pleasure? We can walk outside yeah. and feel the sun on our face. You couldn't do that up there, but it, was it a way of, of, I don't know, reminding yourself of what life on Earth was like? No, actually, the sunrises and sunsets, they were more like uh, watching a painting be created in front of you. What really tied you to home was seeing all seven and a half billion people every day because the world turns underneath you. Yeah. So you see everybody. You look down and go, oh, look, there's Karachi, whatever, nine, <laughs> nine million people. Yeah. Holy cow. And, and uh, 10 minutes later, you know, you're, you're coming over whatever, Singapore. And, and, and you wait 40 minutes and now you're over San Francisco and the whole world and everybody in it and all of our, what we think are so wildly different cultures and you know, we, we pretend we're so radically different mm -hmm. from each other. When you see the whole thing in 90 minutes, you realize this is one little shared, if you can go around it in 90 minutes, it can't be very <laughs> big, right? Like, you know, if you can drive across something in 90 minutes, you can run for 90 minutes, yeah. you know? Um, and so the world is not very large. And I think that's what really tied me back was having that, that constant reminder uh, of the life there and, and how joined it is. I'm in conversation with Commander Chris Hatfield. During your command on the ISS, 
education was very important to you. You were very active on social media. We knew what was happening, but you was all about education. Was that one of your mandates or was it a personal mandate? Both. Um, uh, well, of course, for the space agency, uh, they are one of the main scientific bodies within mm -hmm. Canada, along with, you know, Scientific and Engineering Research Council and uh, some of the various other things the government does. We, we need people to be aware of how things work. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at a city like Toronto, the complexity of the science and engineering that allows all of us to live here in such sort of carefree comfort um, doesn't happen automatically. Right. It happens because of people understanding all of the complexity. And, and, but you have to inspire people. And, and I'm lucky enough to have done a job that just by sort of its very nature, the rarity of it and the distance of it, it, it catches people's attention. If I sit next to someone on a bus and we're like, hey, look out the window, and, and so what do you do? I'm an astronaut. All normal yep. conversation <laughs> no, stops, absolutely. right? You know, if I'd said I'm an engineer, a tax accountant, or whatever, like that. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, so therefore, there is a responsibility comes with the job. And I would already been an astronaut for 20 years when I went up for my third space flight, the long one on the space station. So I sort of knew what everybody on the bus wanted to talk about. Right. And, and I worked really hard in, when I was supposed to be asleep. I would steal one or two hours every night when, when my schedule said sleep. <laughs> I would go, I'll sleep later. Let's try and get one more video cranked right. out of what, what this means. And, not, and use the beauty and the allure and the science fiction aspects of it to get people to maybe understand a little more clearly the universe around us. Were you aware of the impact that you were having? Uh, well, no, sort of remotely, you know. Um, there's no, you know, I'm a musician as well, and when, mm -hmm. when you play in front of an audience, while you're playing, you, you could be, there's, there's no sound for right. the audience, yeah, yeah. but at the end, there's applause. In space, you do all this, there's no applause, yeah. <laughs> but, but you're still aware that there's an audience. Yeah. And, uh, but mostly, I was just trying to use all the time to, to create content, because I knew I'd have the rest of my life to sort of decide. I took thousands and thousands of pictures, 45,000, then eventually published a book of like what it would be like mm -hmm. to go around the world with me, or collecting the ideas, or writing music, trying to, trying to soak up the idea, and then record it as many ways as I could, so that I had multimedia ways of playing it back for myself and other people the rest of my life. Do you still think like an astronaut? I believe I do. I'm, I'm very clinical about uh, risk prioritization, preparing for events. Uh, I, I mean, I recently closed, winterized my cottage. Yeah. And I don't know how other people winterize the cottage, but I kind of winterize a cottage like an astronaut. I think, you know, there's, there's a list of dangers and risks, and then there's ways to mitigate those risks, and then there's actions that have to follow, and then there's ways to double-check afterwards yeah. that you've done those actions, and then you report it, and then you keep a checklist for next year so that, so that you don't miss the steps next year. And, and I sort of approach everything like that, flying with the snowbirds or uh, flying my own airplanes, you know, where people let me fly an airplane, I, or whatever. I, I sort of treat everything as an interesting task with a certain amount of risk and danger with some sort of end game. And the real question is, can I change myself to be able to do this thing so it now just increases the number of things that I'm, I'm uh, skilled at in my life? That was Commander Chris Hadfield when we come back. We'll meet Mo Rocca, author of Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving. Welcome back, everybody. Mo Rocca, he's a correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning and author of Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving. It's a book that asks, 
why should it be only the rich and famous who get obits? It's a celebratory look at extraordinary people whose names you may not remember, plus sitcom characters, historical epochs, and even snack foods that have all bitten the dust. He stopped by the Pop Life Bar to discuss his new book, The Art of the Obituary, and how a good obituary is about a person's life, not their death. Where did your love of obituaries come from? It came from my father mm -hmm. when I was growing up in the Washington, D.C. area. He always said the obits was his favorite section of the paper. And my father was not morbid at all. Mm -hmm. He had a real sense of the romance of life, loved to watch old movies, old musicals. Um, and I think that makes perfect sense that he would love obits because I think a good obituary is really about someone's life, not their death. Mm -hmm. and, um, you're obviously a, a cineist, is that the right yes, word? Yes, so yes. so um, I think that a good um, I think that a good obituary is like the 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 movie trailer for an Oscar-winning biopic. Mm -hmm. I think it has that kind of a sweep. If it's well-written, it will leave you breathless. Um, and, and I think that's what he responded to and what I respond to. Well, we were talking earlier before the cameras were rolling. I love the Mobituaries podcast. Mm -hmm. I'm just so drawn into it. Uh, the book I've read, it's fantastic stuff. Mm -hmm. But tell me how you define what the difference between an obituary and a mobituary. Yeah. Well, a mobituary is um, really sort of a second telling mm -hmm. of a person's life. Um, I, it's, it's an appreciation for someone who didn't get the send-off mm -hmm. they deserved the first time around. And that person could still be a household name, but is not remembered in the way that I think they should be remembered. Um, it could be somebody who was once wildly famous and fell off the map. It could also be somebody who was never really appreciated. Or it could be a thing, because yeah. things generally don't get obituaries. <laughs> Yeah. You mentioned, you know, that it's not always a person place. Sometimes it's a thing. Yeah. And so you talk about dragons. And, and how, do you, how do you settle on dragons? You could write about so many things. Why dragons? Well, I'll tell you, and I'm not, and, and Game of Thrones fans are going to hate hearing this when I tell you about Watch the Watch what death you, of very the popular here. Watch uh, what right. you say. And I'm actually not a big dragons person, but I was so taken with this idea. I was listening to a biography of American founding father Thomas mm -hmm. Paine, and I love when you find a little thread and just pull it. And there was one line, basically a parenthetical, mentioning that in 1735, a Swedish botanist named Carl Linnaeus went to an, an exhibition in Hamburg, um, in what is now Germany, then an independent city-state, to, to a wildly popular exhibition of a seven-headed hydra. And he walked in there, um, and he said, this isn't real. This is a bunch of snakeskins sewn together with a weasel skull and feet stuffed in there and monkey guts yeah, like yeah. to fill it out. It's not real. And just like that, people realized he, he essentially he he publicized this, his his he debunked it. Debunked yeah. it. Thank you. He debunked it and and uh, um, and it was the, the beginning of natural science, I mm -hmm. guess. And he said, you know, that God would not have created a being with more than one head. I love the level of detail you bring to the stories. And, Thank you. and, and in conversation here, we're hearing little details that just help us understand the whole. Yeah. And I think that's so important. Well, right. I mean, I mean, I guess Linnaeus might say that God is in the details, right? <laughs> in those little schemes connecting those snake skins. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm a glutton for information mm -hmm. and for factoids. Let's talk about the death of a diagnosis. Yeah. That's a mm -hmm. fascinating chapter in the book. Yeah, and that was very personal to mm -hmm. me. So in 19, 
1973, it went into full effect in 1974, the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality from the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, mm -hmm. which is and remains the catalog of mental illnesses. Um, homosexuality had been in there from its beginning in 1952, the DSM's beginning, until 1974 when it was ratified, the decision to take it out. And, you know, this had, um, this, this lent credence, scientific credence, to a lot of harsh anti-gay laws um, and discrimination. Um, and as it happens, that same year, 1974, I was five years old, and my family got the World Book Encyclopedia, which I cherish. I still have those volumes, and I feel bad for kids who don't have those big volumes that, like I, I would just lie on my stomach on the red family room carpet and page through them. And they look fantastic on the bookshelf, too, And they're still right? in my New York apartment. I, I saved them when, when my mother finally sold the house. I said, I, I don't want to give those away, and, and so I have them up there. Um, and I remember as intuitively when I read the entry, the pitifully short entry on homosexuality, intuitively knowing this is about me, this is, and, and rereading that entry over and over again and hoping maybe that another line would magically appear and offer right. some kind of reassurance. Uh, and little did I know that at this time, this major decision was being made, but I wanted to include it for personal reasons and also the idea that diagnoses are meant to help people and I, and I think much of the leadership of the APA back then did want to help people. Mm -hmm. It was a misunderstanding. It was ignorance, obviously. Um, and it took a gay member of that association, a gay psychiatrist, um, to address the convention that year in Dallas in 1972 and explain that he was gay and a psychiatrist and was not mentally ill. And he persuaded the, the rest of the leadership to, to um, toss it out of the DSM. And that made a big difference. I'm in conversation with author Mo Rocca. Do you think that the art of obituaries has changed, even though the people at obituary con may, may obit con, uh, may disagree, but do you think that it's changed uh, because there's fewer newspapers now? Well, yes, but a couple of interesting things that I learned at ObitCon is um, as one person, and it may be the guy who won the Lifetime Grimmy, and he's Tom from the Globe and Mail. Oh, yeah. Uh, yep. I can't remember. Okay, but I think he may have been the one that said this when he received the Grimmy, not the Grammy, right. which is their award. He said, you know, it used to be that writing obits was for the losers and the drunks, his words. Funny. That apparently changed around, and in, in it, it, I can't believe it ever was that, because when you write an obit, you're writing, you're, you might as well be writing for sports and business yeah. and arts and, and politics. Mm -hmm. It's the variety, and it's the most purely narrative form of journalism. Um, but it, it supposedly turned around the reputation um, with the British, because the British obits have always been pretty fantastic. So I do think that obits are, and paid death notices are bringing life. <laughs> <laughs> to newspapers, big and small. Uh, other than King of Gambia, what might your obituary say in the first couple of lines? I think the first line, I'd like it to say Mo Rocca, comma, then comes the big clause, who made people interested in things they didn't expect to be interested in, comma, died today, period. He was 135. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank what you, a pleasure Richard. To speak to you. Very fun. That was Mo Rocca. You see him every Sunday on CBS Sunday Morning. Now you can read his book, Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving, or listen to his great podcast, Mobituaries. When we come back, I'll introduce you to Things No One Else Can Teach Us author, Humble the Poet. Welcome back, everyone. 
Humble the Poet stops by the Pop Life Bar. He is a Canadian-born rapper, spoken word artist, poet, international best-selling author, and former elementary school teacher with a wildly popular blog with over hundreds of thousands of monthly readers and hundreds of thousands more who follow him on social media. In this conversation, we discuss his new book, Things No One Else Can Teach Us, what he learned from his failures, including a bad record deal, and how, even after he crawled out of crippling debt, the satisfaction was short-lived, and much more. Here's Humble the Poet. So I've been reading about you, and I've read that when you were a young person, that the autobiography of Malcolm X was your favorite book. What was it about that book that spoke to you? Um, I think it was his honesty. I think it was also kind of uh, growing up in an urban environment. I come from Rexdale, uh, you know, which is one of our urban neighborhoods in Mm -hmm. Toronto. And just to see the idea that you can learn and, you know, not have to lose yourself in in the lessons uh, once they change who you, you know, once they change the trajectory of your life. And I think with Malcolm X, the importance is not only the message he was presenting, but how he presented it. You know, he, uh, uh, in his previous life, he was, you know, he he ran in the gangs on the Mm -hmm. streets and he kept that swagger and that style and that allowed him to deliver his message in a way that people really resonated with. So I think for me as a hip hop artist, as an elementary school teacher, how you deliver the message is just as important as the message. And I think that was one of the first people that kind of showed it to me and spoke it in a language that I understood. When I read your book, when I listen to to the music, um, there are lessons to be learned, and lessons certainly with the book, and, and there are lessons to be taken away from it. Is yeah. that just part and parcel of who you are? Uh, 100%. It's a, to be a teacher is to be a lifelong learner. The reason I wanted to be a teacher was as one of the few professions that I understood at the time where you could do it for 30 years and you will not say any two days were the same. Or you right. will not say, I've seen it all. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. every day is an adventure in that. And, especially uh, at the elementary level. Especially yeah. at the elementary level. I have plenty of stories I can share there. And I think for me, um, and as I got into it, and I taught for about seven years, um, you know, you start to realize there's other parts of this job that may not be as fun. And for me, I kind of got into it, A, to continue learning for myself selfishly, uh, but B, also to, you know, to light a fire within students. And right. sometimes when you get into standardized testing or when you start getting into the, the expectations of your principal or your superintendent or how the government gets involved in children's education, that really sucks the fun out of it. So I think for me as an artist, uh, as I slowly, you know, moved away from teaching and got into art, um, what I realized was this was my opportunity to still light fires in people, but not have to give them a pop quiz after. <laughs> That's right, and, and and spend hours, you know, grading, marking, and grading, and, and yeah. evaluating a kid. Yeah, that and that part wasn't my favorite. So I think now I've been able to make the the necessary shift where I can still, you know, be that lifelong learner uh, and still take what I've learned and share them with the community of people who are interested in hearing it. When you left teaching, YouTube was still, it wasn't exactly in its infancy, yeah. uh, but it's a new thing. Yeah. You know, in, in some ways, it could still be considered a new-ish, thing, yeah. a new way of, of communicating. Uh, and, you know, that was happening, and there was a record deal happening. How did your parents feel about all of this and, the, and your family? Because it's a hard way to make a living. Yes. It's an unusual way to make yes. a living. And I had read in an interview where you'd said, well, they would have preferred if you were an engineer or a doctor or something. When you came home and said, it's hip-hop for me, what yeah. did they say? Um, they saw that I was working on music uh, after school anyways. Right. I, was, I was working two jobs. I was working as a full-time teacher, and I was tutoring high school kids at math. So I spent about four hours after work doing that. Yeah. And I'd come home, I'd write, record, and release something on YouTube. Wow. So they saw the work ethic, and the, and, and the main thing I was sacrificing at that point was sleep. And <laughs> so 
Uh, they knew when I said I'm going to leave, leave the job full-time, I, I have a potential record deal on the table, and I'm going to work on music full-time. They knew that I wasn't you know, just looking for an excuse to quit my job and do nothing. They knew the work ethic was going to be there. Um, they didn't understand it, and I knew if they, if, if they could, they would have opposed it. But they, they knew me, and they knew that that, that wasn't going to really be an issue. And uh, I, I, had, I was living on my own, and the record deal ended up not happening. Yeah, and, but yeah. you learn from that. And here's the, the thing, okay, so the book is called Things No One Else Can Teach Us. Yeah. And you talk about the record deal, and, you know, you thought, that that was it. Yeah. You know, you thought that this is it, yeah. and I'm on my way. Yeah. Uh, and it turned out that it wasn't, and, and in fact led to a series of kind of calamitous things that happened yeah. afterwards. But it is your uh, position of learning from every single thing that happens that turned it into a positive. Completely. If not immediately, but... Oh, definitely not immediately, yeah. <laughs> it took me a year to realize the deal wasn't coming, and at that point I was living off credit cards and line yeah. of credit and got myself in about $80,000 of debt before I kind of had my realization that, okay, the check isn't coming, mm -hmm. the deal isn't real, the people I was working with have disappeared, and now I'm kind of unemployed with a lot of debt, and I have no idea how artists earn. Right. At yeah, that yeah. point, yeah, yeah. I thought, you know, you just become a talented artist and then somebody with a lot of money discovers you and they sign you and, and there you go yeah you know, there you go that's the dream but that's not what happened so instead i had to at that point have the 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 real conversation with myself which is look you can talk about who betrayed you you can talk about who lied to you you can talk about what the world did to you or you can take personal responsibility for uh having unrealistic mm -hmm. unrealistic expectations um for believing things that without doing any due diligence and once i took ownership i found a lot more power to control my situation and that's when i sold my condo moved back home with my parents, had to hear a lot of I told you so's, sure. which I deserved, <laughs> and I slowly crawled myself out of debt over the next three years, uh, learning different ways that artists can earn. Um, and it was a slow process, but once I got out of debt, I also I was in a position now to continue earning, mm -hmm. and every year got better and better after that. And in the meantime, I started learning a lot of life lessons regarding my regrets, regarding my anxieties, regarding my expectations, uh, regarding how I can handle heartbreak, and it put me in a situation to realize there's more tools to deal with these challenging things than simply the guilt and shame mm -hmm. that we're generally taught when we... Uh, don't accomplish what we want. And I learned that failure isn't the opposite of success. Failure is uh, the road that we pave to get to success. I'm in conversation with things no one else can teach us, author, humble the poet. Well, and then you get to success, yeah. which you have, yeah. and you're like, it's not what I thought it would be. Oh, definitely not. You know, and, yeah. and, and it's, it's interesting. There's, there's a, a thing that you say about for every thing that you do. So yeah. I've, I've, I've got a hit song now. You're happy for five hours, yeah, and then it, then it goes away. And so, tell me a little bit about learning to deal with that feeling, because all our lives we're told you have to be successful. Yeah. Look at you; you're not a success. You'll be a success one day. You, yeah. but success, success, success is such a big thing. Yeah. For you, tell me about coming to grips with the idea that it wasn't and isn't maybe everything you thought it would be. Yeah, completely. I had promised myself, I go, once you get out of debt, then you can start living your life. Yeah. Nothing else matters, get out of debt. And then I got out of debt, and I was super happy, and it lasted about five hours, and then it was like, <laughs> what's next? And then also a lot of fear about, how do I ensure I don't go fall back into debt? Right. And I started realizing that as I had this mindset of, there's always going to be this pot of gold at the end of my rainbow, and once I hit that pot of gold, I'm going to be great. After hitting a few pot of goals and crossing a few milestones, realizing, okay, it's fun, I can enjoy it for a couple of hours, but then instantly I'm thinking about what's next. Yeah. Maybe I should focus a lot more on the rainbow. 
uh, a lot less on this pot of gold. Right. So uh, I realized then that life isn't about the destination, it's about the journey. And now I've adjusted myself, so I no, I no longer have goals, mm -hmm. I have direction. You know, I want to have yeah. a, I want to be in a position where I am earning more every day. I want to be in a position where I'm making healthier choices every day. So it's no longer about getting the six pack or getting a million dollars right. in the bank account. It's about making sure I'm headed in the right direction and knowing that I have to enjoy this journey. It's a, enjoy the view wherever you are climbing the mountain because there's no peak. <laughs> and uh, you know, the real gem is the rainbow, not the pot of gold. I have often said that I wish that in my career I had taken more time along the way to enjoy those moments that were really great instead of going, man, what's going to happen what's next? next? What's yeah, next? What's yeah. next? What's next? Yeah. You, you will drive yourself crazy thinking you'll, that. You'll go bananas. Things No One Else Can Teach Us is the book. It's part memoir, part self-help, although I know you don't like that term. Definitely not. How do you describe it? Um, I am a lifelong learner. I'm a student who likes to share his notes. You know, I'm, not, I'm nobody's teacher, and I love learning cool things, and I love finding people who want to hear about the cool things I learned. Mm -hmm. And I, being a, a hip-hop artist and being a, a third-grade teacher has really prepared me to take heavy ideas and simplify them with everyday language, conversational language, so other people can digest them. And my, my goal is to make the most important ideas that we've ever discovered accessible to everybody. And I'm not the creator of the ideas. I've just taken the time and done the work to make these ideas digestible for everybody. Uh, and I'm here to learn from everybody just as much as anybody wants to learn from me. And the, the root of all the wisdom that I've uh, been gifted and I've been able to share has been from the mistakes that I've made. And I look forward to making more mistakes so I can learn from them as well. So the last thing I ever want to be is somebody in the self-help space. I want to be somebody in the wellness space that helps other people grow, but I think everybody should be uh, focused on the wellness space for themselves. That was Humble the Poet. Check out his book, Things No One Else Can Teach Us. Finally, my interview with Danny Goldberg. Danny Goldberg uh, is so accomplished, and I hate reading long list of accomplishments, but what a career this guy has had. He began his career in 1969 as a music journalist. From 1974 to 1976, he was vice president of Led Zeppelin's Swan Song Records, and in the early 1980s, he co-owned Modern Records, which released Stevie Nicks' solo albums. He's worked with everyone from Bonnie Raitt and the Allman Brothers to Hole and Sonic Youth. He was the executive producer of the soundtrack for the TV series Miami Vice and was music supervisor on numerous films, including Dirty Dancing. He began managing Nirvana just before Nevermind made them international superstars. In the 25th anniversary of Kurt Cobain's death, he visited the Pop Life Bar to talk about his close relationship with Cobain, both personally and professionally, and his new book, Serving the Servant, Remembering Kurt Cobain. Here's Danny Goldberg. You began managing Nirvana just before Nevermind came out. Uh, so that record made them international superstars and it happened fast and it was, uh, it was unlike anything I'd really seen before uh, in the music business uh, you know maybe I was paying attention more at that point um, but how did you know or did you know what was your first meeting with well Kurt it happened in stages I actually mm -hmm. met them uh, the three of them Kurt uh, Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl who had just joined the band came to the office of my management company in Los Angeles in, uh, I think it was October of 1990. So that was almost a year before Nevermind was actually released, but they had already written, Kurt had already written several of the songs that would later be on Nevermind, and, and, and he knew that they wanted to be on a major record company. The first indie record they made, Bleach, which was a more punk record, mm -hmm. was on an indie label called Sub Pop, and, 
Sub Pop were great curators and Kurt appreciated what they did for him, but, but notwithstanding his love of punk culture, he, he wanted to be on a big label. He wanted to reach a big audience. And that was clear within the first five minutes of the first meeting. I've read that you said that one of the differences between Led Zeppelin and Nirvana were that Led Zeppelin really liked being the biggest band in the world and Nirvana maybe not as much. Um, I don't know that I said that because I don't believe that. Really? Uh, yeah. I, Kurt wanted to have Nirvana to be the biggest band yeah. in the world. He was competitive with Pearl Jam, for example, and, and they had so much in common. Those two bands were both from Seattle. They both kind of were left-wing politically. They both influenced by the punk subculture and unpretentious mm -hmm. in, in many ways against the grandiosity of so-called corporate rock. But he didn't like it when, when he called me once and said, you know, I've seen Pearl Jam on MTV three times today and only one Nirvana video. What are we doing <laughs> wrong? So, you know, he wanted them to be big. But the difference, I think, is that Kurt was not satisfied with only being big. Mm -hmm. He also had another set of values that mattered a lot to him that he wanted to communicate. He cared about political issues. He hated homophobia and sexism and did a lot of benefit shows about it. Wrote lyrics about it. He wrote two anti-rape songs. I can't think of another rock artist who's written one. Uh, he, he cared about being a patron of younger punk rock artists. All the opening acts on Nirvana shows were people I'd never mm -hmm. heard of that he wanted to shine a light on. And he, he and the other members of the band would have discussions about what t-shirts to wear when they were doing a photo session or a TV appearance so they could help promote these other right. younger bands. So he had a cultural mission, whereas Zeppelin just wanted to be great. Nothing wrong with that, yeah. but there was another level of depth to Nirvana. There just was. You staged an intervention for Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love um, to get treatment for their, for their drug problems. Um, what can you tell me about the reaction and and what happened subsequently? Well, there were two interventions I was part of. The first one was within a week or two of me and a number of other people around the band realizing that Kurt and Courtney were doing heroin. It first became clear to me in January of 92. I know the date because it was the day they first did the American show Saturday Night Live. Right. And a lot of us realized that day there had been two articles that were faxed. In those days, there's no internet yeah. that had references to Kurt being on drugs. And then seeing him, it was obvious that yep. he was stoned. It's amazing how good that performance is, and that's typical of Kurt. He compartmentalized better than anyone I've ever known, and he always rose to the occasion as an artist, even when he was tormented personally. Mm -hmm. So uh, the following week, when they were back in Los Angeles, which was where they were living, then we had an intervention and begged them to get treatment. And they did go into treatment, and you know it, it worked for a while. Um, Kurt never took to the 12-step program which in my experience is the most effective mm -hmm. way for people who are alcoholics or drug addicts to stay clean, sober, and have a happy, productive lives. It wasn't for him. And uh, finding a plan B was elusive. We introduced him to different therapists and different doctors. Uh, I'm a meditator, and I talked to him about that. Courtney also is a meditator. Ch Buddhist chanting is, is, is her thing. Mm -hmm. And he struggled on and off for the rest of his, his life with it. The final intervention Courtney organized uh, and asked me and a few other people to come to the house in Seattle, and that was just a week or so before he killed himself. And uh, that was, uh, by, you can't say that was very effective. He went into rehab for a day or two, but then left and killed himself. But it was all any of us could think of to do. I'm in conversation with legendary music manager Danny Goldberg. Is it true that the addiction specialist who worked with 
Aerosmith spent just an hour with Kurt and, and Courtney and then left. And oh, said, he didn't hey, even spend an hour. No. He was there for about 10 minutes, you know. Uh, um, it was just a weird thing. I didn't know. I called uh, for advice about, because there's a particularity to the issues that a rock performer has mm -hmm. compared to just everybody else. They're public figures and they have a notion of being rebels. And, you know, uh, I thought it might be helpful to have someone who dealt with other rock artists with drug problems. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there are quite a few who have <laughs> yeah, had yeah. drug right, problems. Yeah, yeah. And one of them was the members of Aerosmith. And Aerosmith's manager recommended this guy to me, who I write about in the book. And I hadn't met him before. We all kind of met at Cedar sinai Hospital in, in Los Angeles, which is, um, and Kurt and Courtney were there too. And, and this guy has like cutoffs and tattoos and he's name dropping other bands he's worked with before Kurt and Courtney got there. And I was already, having a sinking feeling because that's really kind of the opposite yeah. of what you want from a therapist yeah. of any kind. And then um, this was, Courtney had just learned days earlier that she was pregnant. And the subject of does she have the baby or not came up quickly. The drug counselor suggested maybe she should have an abortion. Courtney was outraged by this and wanted immediate medical advice to see if this was his opinion or whether it was a medical issue. And this, uh, and Bob, the, um, the so-called uh, expert, looked at me and said, I've never been involved with something like this, a man and a woman and somebody who's pregnant. I, I can't handle this. And he got into the elevator and left, and that was the last we ever saw of him. And I never heard from him again until about a year later when he sent the bill for $600 for his services, which eventually we paid because it wasn't worth yeah. the publicity of a dispute. Yeah. But or, or not an impressive, not an impressive yeah. dude. Uh, but there were other people that were impressive that met Kurt, uh, uh, an older guy named Buddy Arnold, who was a jazz musician who had knew John Coltrane right. and been through that whole culture and taught Kurt, Kurt some Yiddish phrases. Yes. But, and Kurt loved Buddy personally, and there was a doctor he introduced him to that Kurt liked, but it never stuck the way, the way uh, it does with some people, and, and uh, that was just the struggle that those of us who loved him went through. You talk about uh, loving him, you talk about you know, helping to arrange interventions, doing a lot of things, but you also say that you were a good manager for Kurt, but a bad friend. What does that mean? Well, he killed himself, so yeah. you know, I, I think the management, I think, was pretty perfect. I mean, we made great deals for them, and, and they made a lot of money through those deals, and he had 100% artistic control over everything he did. That was the manager job. Mm -hmm. But as a human being, he, he killed himself. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no getting around that, and there's no way any of us who knew him, or anybody who's ever close to someone who kills himself, yeah. which unfortunately happens a lot in society all over the world, uh, there are questions you always ask yourself. Uh, I don't logically believe there's any magic answer, or else we would have come up with one, and 60,000 people a year in the US wouldn't kill themselves yeah. every year. But I can't help but wonder, should I invited him over more? Should I have spent more time with him? Should I have had a different tone in my voice in the last conversation? It's impossible not to think that way when you're close to someone who does this. When you were writing the book, was reliving these memories difficult? Or, or is it something that you have come to peace with or thought about a great deal over the last you know, 25 years? Well, it was a roller coaster. put in perspective, coaster. maybe. Yeah, it was a roller coaster. You know, I... I have never forgotten about Kurt. There's a picture of me and him that's in the book that I've had in my office every day since, since he died. And so it's always in my mind that he was part of my life, but I hadn't concentrated on him the way I did until I did the book and now talking about the book. 
And it's a roller coaster. I mean, it's so moving to me to meet people who saw Nirvana show or remember yeah. what that record meant to them or some people who met him. And the stories about people who met him are always good stories. There's, he, he was a sweetheart of a guy to yeah. everyone except himself. Yeah. And then, and then the memory of his death, which is so sad. So it's, it, it was both, uh, it, it, there were highs and lows in, in writing the book, as there are in talking about it, as there were in, in knowing him. If he was still with us, how would you see him today? Well, he'd be an artist, that's yeah. for sure. He was an artist to his core. And he defined himself that way privately as well as publicly. Mm -hmm. What the art would be, I have no idea. He didn't like to repeat himself. He was also quite talented graphically. Earlier in his life, he thought he might be a painter or a graphic artist. And he, a lot of his artwork shows up on the Nirvana artwork. And all of the ideas were his ideas. And when you went to his apartment or later to his house, there were always dozens and dozens of drawings and paintings everywhere and notebooks with poems. And so he would have been doing something creative. He wouldn't be copying himself. I, I think of him on kind of that short list with people like Bob Dylan and David Bowie, right. who always wanted to reinvent himself to stay alive and in the moment and not just be copying himself. But I'm sure he would be doing something brilliant. How successful it would be, I don't know. But he, he, he was pretty successful when he was alive. Danny, thank you so much. What a pleasure to speak to you. Thank, thank you. you. That was legendary music industry figure Danny Goldberg. What a fascinating guy. That's all the time we have for this week. I want to thank all my guests, including Commander Chris Hadfield, Mo Rocca, Humble the Poet, and of course, my biggest thanks goes to you for sticking around every week. Be sure to check out Pop Life. We're on at 8.30 every Saturday night on CTV News Channel, and then again on midnight. We'll talk to you again next week.